0: Hi, this is Diane Carbo with Caregiver Relief. Today I have with me Betsy. She is a dementia care specialist, a podcast contributor, a caregiver coach, and she has the Facebook group, Kick Alzheimer's Ass. I love that name. (laughs) And Betsy and I are going to have a discussion on early onset dementia. Uh, Betsy knows this topic all too well because she's lived it. So, Betsy, welcome, and uh, I'm excited for you to share your story with other caregivers out there who who are going through uh, a lot right now, and hopefully something that you'll share with them will click and it will help them.
1: Hi, Diane. Thank you for having me on. Yes, my husband, Matt was diagnosed at the age of 56 after showing signs of memory loss at work and at home. It was a battle to get the neurologist to say he had early onset. He was misdiagnosed with depression. He was not believed by the neuropsychologist to tested him that he could be that bad. She accused him of being noncompliant. Don't you just love it when they uh, uh. blame the person Hello, he's coming to you for memory loss. I just I, I didn't know eleven years ago what I know now because I would have really reamed her. <laughs> Uh,
0: What I don't understand is there's testing that they can do. They're supposed to be doing. Then you're telling me the neuropsychologist, which should be very familiar with early onset dementia and the signs and symptoms has let you down. That disturbs me. Can you tell me what tests they did or did not do? And with that information that you have now, what would you have asked?
1: Back then, um, It was 11 years ago. I don't remember the exact name. Matt was there for at least five or six hours. It was an intense cognitive test. She tested his verbal, nonverbal. I know she would show him something to uh, draw, to copy. He couldn't do it. He couldn't remember what she would just tell him to say back to her. It was quite an intense test. And then she gave him like a book for him to answer questions, and that was fried at that time. He couldn't take it anymore, so then he might not have cooperated. But I, what I would have done differently if I would have known uh, better at the time, I would have said to her, why don't you believe him? He's coming to you for help. Why don't you help him? Yeah. How can you say that... He's being non-compliant. What he was, he's telling you he doesn't remember what you just showed him. But back then, Diane, eleven years ago, they didn't know back then what they know now.
0: Yeah, they did to some degree. I I understand what you're saying. And for our listeners out there, I uh, I want people to know that the early onset Alzheimer's disease is is someone that's diagnosed in their fifties, but it can be as early as in their thirties and forties. It has a strong genetic component to it. So if you've had grandparents or parents with Alzheimer's disease, you're at much greater risk. I'm really disturbed that they didn't, that the testing they did, she should have known that there was something going on. What did they say? They, they say that he's non-compliant? You know, one of the sad parts is we always say and we push, it's so important to get a correct diagnosis of early onset and do it as soon as possible. And here you are, you were doing that and you were meeting resistance from the medical community.
1: Yes, that's what got me really disgusted eventually when I brought a smartphone into my car to raise awareness because I was so mad how we were treated, how Matt was treated, how we were blown off. The doctors did not want to say that Matt had Alzheimer's because of his age. We were told he's too young. He was misdiagnosed. The neuropsychologist said, Matt had a deep psychological problem and was depressed. And I said, okay, but why can't he remember? It took. That was February. In May, it might have been May or June, I put my foot down because Matt would say, he said to me, what time is Sunday school? Now, Matt taught Sunday school for over 20 years. Mm-hmm. And I said, are you serious, Matt, or are you, you know, joking? Because he was a jokester. And he goes, no, I'm serious. What time is it on your watch? He said, I don't know. I said, you don't know as in you can't read it, you can't see it, you don't know. He goes, I can't tell time. That's not depression, Diane, you know. That's not depression. So I went back to the doctor. And and we went to other neurologists, and they said he's, uh, Matt's too young. But Matt's MRI showed global shrinkage, significant
0: global shrinkage. So even, so you're telling me, even with the the MRI showing this major shrinkage, they, they, they were still reluctant to give him the diagnosis of early onset
1: Alzheimer's. Yes. Oh. yes. And Matt's company doctor, who I don't know if she saw him in person or not, she told me and she wrote a letter to Matt's primary doctor, she suspected dementia. She did. She said, I feared that he does have dementia. She goes, I'm hoping it could be the reversible kind due to some kind of vitamin deficiency. She said, But I don't think so. She never saw a test, Diane. His Uh, EEG was abnormal. For folks who don't know it's the brain waves was abnormal. And it's even said on there suggestive of dementia. I mean, oh. you just want to throttle some of these doctors. Now, I'm not promoting violence, so let's make that clear. You just get so frustrated. So I said to the neurologist, I said, listen, Matt doesn't know how to tell time. That's not depression anymore. Call it what it is and get him on medication. And, yes. you know, I, I have to tell everyone, Diane, we're, we're both advocates. You must be an advocate. I don't care how shy and quiet you are. You have to stand up. And educate yourself. I educated myself with the information that was out there at the time. And now I have to say this I envy caregivers in a way now because there's a lot of information out there now. There's no reason to be uneducated, caregiver. It's up to you. You have to do the homework and you need to do it.
0: Absolutely. I think one of the, the things that caregivers need to understand, is, and we understand, you're feeling lonely, you're feeling. The possibility of losing your partner that you thought you were going to spend the rest of your life with is frightening. And and then you're changing your role from being a a romantic uh, lover, partner, to whatever, to now being a caregiver. And it complicates a relationship. And then you have the health care delivery system, um, our health care professionals letting you down as well. Yeah. Uh, So I, I do recommend, like you say, do the research on your own and get in touch with people like Betsy and I who have been there, lived it, done it, and know how to support you along the way.
1: Yes, I get into a support group. There wasn't really that many at the time. Yeah. There was one for young wives, but it was at a time where I couldn't go. Go in person if you can, join an uh, online support group. And I have to say, because I belong to many support groups, like well, I did when I first joined Facebook, younger onset Alzheimer's or whatever dementia you have, it has a whole different circum- set of circumstances versus someone who is in their 80s and 90s. I'm not saying it's not as terrible, but when you have someone in their prime of life getting this disease, their independence is taken away, your roles are reversed. It's traumatic to the family. And for those who have teenage children, young children, my heart goes out to them because I know it's difficult. My son was already 26, but to have a young child, a teenager, and seeing their parent like that, it's hard. It's so difficult.
0: And we also, in our medical delivery system, lack age-appropriate services. And I I know from having cared in behavioral health units for several or many people with early onset dementia, a placement is really hard for them. And there's a hardship that's placed on the families As well, financially, because the person is young, they have families. Uh, You were blessed in the sense that Josh is a little older, but I've taken care of, of men or women that have had young children. And they had their whole life ahead of them. And all of a sudden, their behaviors are so out of whack that they're aggressive and violent, which does happen with early onset I don't know, uh, we can talk about that later, but there's sexual inappropriate behavior and they're not able to work. Like you were saying, Matt had problems at work and he couldn't function.
1: His company, I have to say, was so good to him. I was actually in his disability hearing because they knew Matt couldn't remember. It was so unusual. It was the first time they had a spouse in a disability hearing. They had to get special corporate permission, and they asked Matt per- permission, you know, for me to go. Mm-hmm. Because, and I was like, I was devastated. I mean, I was crying in the meeting. I couldn't believe it. I could mm-hmm. not believe because Matt didn't tell me anything. Like, didn't, And I wish I would have had this information when I went to a neuropsychologist. But Diane, because of the HIPAA laws, yeah. they wouldn't tell me anything. Yes. They could not tell me because I asked the human resource person, that's all well, you would have had it done was ask Matt. He would have said yes. And then when you take away their driving, Diane, which is a yeah. whole nother topic, it can yeah. be a whole nother show. It yeah. is devastating. So you're yeah. taking away someone's independence who is, still knows what's going on. Matt mm-hmm. knew what was going on when his car was taken away. And it is really devastating. the earning potential. Matt had 10 more years left, gone. You're going from more than half your pay cut because you're going social security disability. This is a huge financial problem. People don't
0: understand as well that when you apply for social security disability, it could take as long as two years. Now, I understand, especially when you're young, younger people need special waivers to get into these programs. I I know that's why it's important to have an accurate diagnosis because there is a waiver for early onset dementia now. Maybe it didn't exist when Matt was initially diagnosed, but people struggle with getting approval for Social Security disability when they're under the age of 65, and it is a brutal struggle.
1: We were fortunate. Uh, We had doctor's notes. We had documentation, a lot of documentation, when we went to Social Security. And the person who did the intake, her father died of early onset Alzheimer's. Oh. And she said, my father died at 67 from this. She said, I'm putting you on the fast track. We got it within less than a month. So it depends you, who your person is. Yes, you were very
0: blessed because what I know from my personal experience is not only is the person that with the early onset dementia not able to work, but oftentimes the spouse has to quit work to care for the person with the early onset and the finances just the financial piece gets tight and when they become a full-time caregiver then they lose medical benefits and it's just a a vicious circle so it's really important that people uh, know when they're trying to apply for these benefits that they have all the documentation, and sometimes you might have to go to the employer and ask: Is early retirement an option till you till till you get through the Social Security uh, benefit program? And then you have to do research into Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid, and you. It's important to get your papers in order so that you can organize your financial documents so that you can manage your family's finances, but also understand what you need to do to qualify for different programs. And it's really challenging for the young family. It just really is.
1: Yes, it is. And you have maybe children that are in college, going to college, and then a parent is on Social Security Disability and then how do you afford to send your child to college? You might need your child at home. Yeah, um, to help care for they, your. Are they willing to do that? I'm very blessed that Josh lived at home and that he helped take care of his dad. Otherwise, I would have had to have quit work. We did a tag team. Mm-hmm. And I was, you know, really uh, blessed that I still was able to work. I did apply for myself for, early retirement in case I had to stay home to take care of Matt and I would have some income. But I was old enough then because I had turned 62. But what do you do when you're not 62? And then even at 62, if you apply for early retirement, you don't get as much in Social Security as as you are when you wait until you're 67. You're going to see a lot of people are in that situation and are going to have to really maybe move in with people to be able to afford housing. This is going to be a huge problem.
0: It, it definitely is. One of the things we lack as a country is affordable senior housing, for one thing. Yes. And there's a lack of professional caregivers out there. And for those of you who are doing it, you are the largest group of healthcare workers out there because you're doing actual care, you uh, are not paying into social security. You're not into for your future. So we're going to have a situation where it's, we're getting, going to have a crisis in the next 10 to 20 years in regards to housing. We were the hippies in the seventies, Well, we're going back to commune living. We're going to have to survive.
1: Yes. Yes. I, I believe so. You have know, a situation like, uh, the T V show The Golden Girls. You have yes. a few people living together or a communal type situation. And as a spouse quit work, then your social security earnings are gonna be down. Yes. Because and you I, are also the prime. I can't tell you how
0: many times I have had a client, a patient admitted to a senior behavioral health unit for early onset The behaviors can be aggressive, they can be very scary at times. I find it very sad and frustrating for the families because placement is not available for those kinds of behaviors and it's very hard for people to find placement and they're stuck taking those kinds of patients with those behaviors home. So medical intervention means zonking them sometimes to be able to have them at home and function and feel safe. So people really struggle with that. They really do.
1: Yes. And, Diane, speaking of medication, the listeners need to go back to the show that we did about medication and side effects. Yes. And yes. listen to that because that is a tremendous burden on a family member. I know personally, I worked as a nurse. But personally, giving my husband medication that caused horrible side effects made me feel guilty. I felt terrible. Just to see the deterioration, you had two things going on the deterioration as the disease progressed, and then the medication I felt making Matt worse. And that's a really difficult thing to deal with as a caregiver. With counseling, I, and I'm not ashamed to say, I go for counseling. I think everyone should. I got over that. But because, and this is a whole other show too, Diane, caregiver guilt. I
0: always tell my caregivers, it's a a wasted emotion. It causes shame and negates all the good you've done. So get rid of it. Exactly. Yes. I do want to make... Uh, our listeners aware of there is a LEADS program L-E-A-D-S it's the Longitudinal Early Onset Alzheimer's Disease Study big words <laughs> and it's, uh, you can enroll in this uh, and it's, to do, it's done by the Alzheimer's Association and it's helping to create information or gather information on uh, early onset Alzheimer's. I think that's very interesting and an important thing. I I just pulled up the study eligibility here. Individuals with early onset uh, Alzheimer's disease, including mild cognitive impairment, and those without Alzheimer's can participate in the LEADS program. You have to be between the ages of 40 and 64 Unfortunately, you have to be fluent in English, which that's that's disappointing to me, but that's neither here nor there. That's just my personal opinion because we have so many Spanish-speaking people in our country right now or other languages. And you have to be in general good health, don't have another neurological disorder. And you have a family member or family caregiver who can provide information about the lifestyle. That's an important thing that I think that caregivers, when you're stuck out there and you're not getting the right answers from the medical community, you might want to look into participating in this study because it can help people in the future, if not now.
1: Yes, there are places who do have studies here. I live in New Jersey. They do have research going on, clinical trials, and As I may, Diane, I want to tell if people who are listening and you live in New Jersey or you have a relative that is in New Jersey, please contact, it's called COPSA, C-O-P-S-A. They have support groups. They do. They did clinical trials, but they have a great team over there. Can I give your phone number, Diane? Absolutely. Their phone number is one 800 424-2494, and they are connected with the Rutgers University here in New Jersey. My went there like 20 years ago, and they didn't even have back then what they have now. They have many different types of support groups, early onset for children, spouses. See, they didn't have this 20 years ago. They didn't, I don't even think they had this 11 years ago. But mm-hmm. it's just a phenomenal program. I attend their virtual bereavement group once a month. They have seminars. So if you're in New Jersey or you have a relative in New Jersey, you can qualify to go or to attend. So check that out. And contact me if you want the information. Absolutely.
0: You can find you on your site or Facebook, kick Alzheimer's, Ask. <laughs> Uh, or you can find her at uh, caregiverrelease.com. I think that's really important. Clinical studies are important. There are studies. Get involved in clinical studies if you can, uh, because it's so important that we get information out there in regards to the diagnosis and proper treatment. I have to tell you, Betsy, that you and I both feel that we need to educate our healthcare professionals.
1: Yes. Diane, what annoys me, even in today's society, my brother was not diagnosed with Alzheimer's, but he was having memory issues a year before he died. And the neurologist's attitude was, If it's dementia, there's nothing we can do anyway, and we'll just wait and see. Oh. Uh, if I was not my mother, I would have went ballistic right in there. But my mom, bless her, she's in her 90s, she won't fight a doctor. No, I told her, give me the phone. I'll fight with them. But, of course, she wouldn't do that.
0: I am going to make the comment that I think our disease-specific organizations, like the Alzheimer's Association, Parkinson's, early-onset organizations out there, the disease-specific organizations, are so busy raising funds for cure. And I get we want a cure. I get that. I really do. But they really neglect. They financially neglect the care that uh, the the family caregiver who desperately needs respite care and help. And there's got to be a change in that. We go out, we do walks, we do everything to promote getting the cure for all these diseases. And I can tell you, I'm frustrated at the billions and billions of dollars spent on research and there's nothing done for the family caregiver. There's no programs. When these companies, if they were organizations would get together and provide respite care for the caregiver, there's got to be a way that it can be done. The money is there. It's just utilized in a different way. But I think caregivers have to demand that. We are the largest unpaid group of uh, health care workers out there. We are the invisible health care workers. I think yes. it's time that caregivers band together as a group and demand that things change to help with care in the home. This is me because I feel really bad. We're not paying into social security and we're saving our government billions and billions of dollars a year providing care at home at a great expense to our own financial, emotional, and physical well-being.
1: Yes, I agree a hundred percent, Diane. Caregivers, Need help now. And I agree. Yeah, that's great for a cure. But how long have you been working on the cure? Alzheimer's is over 116 years old, folks. There's no cure. We, the caregivers, and I still feel, well, I am a caregiver. I'm a caregiver to my son, but that's a different type. I will never forget my caregiving journey. Caregivers need help now. They need money for depend, they need money for respite, they need a break before they break. And I have to say, Diane, that the Dementia Spotlight Foundation helps people, Alzheimer's Music Fest. They raise money to help caregivers They help caregivers down, I think, in the Georgia, Florida area. They're going to have that Alzheimer's Music Fest coming up in Florida in August. And I can, when I get the information, I can share it with you, Diane.
0: Absolutely. Uh, It's a great
1: cause. It's a great cause. They help caregivers, and they help them now. And I
0: hope that our caregivers out there will, when they're looking to To work with organizations, they work with the organizations that are going to help them now and not for the cure in the future. The cure, it may never come. We're pouring so much money into it, and Big Pharma and um, these organizations, I get what they're doing, but they are neglecting the family caregiver. And we're, we're hearing 63%. It used to be 50% 10, and, 10 to 15 years ago, but now it's up to 63% of, of caregivers, family caregivers of a senior caring for an aging loved one at home dies or becomes seriously ill before the person with dementia does.
1: Yes, and that's a scary thought, not to mention the fact that they become suicidal. Yes, exactly. Um, Yeah, and that's a problem, folks. They say prevention. I'm from the school, Diane. Yes, exercise is great. Diet is great for trying to prevent it. But really, is there a way to prevent it? Nobody really knows. Know that the healthier you are, when you get this frigging disease, you have a better chance of living longer. Matt was very healthy. He lived 10 years Mm -hmm. uh, with Alzheimer's. I think he was probably had it two years prior to diagnosis, but uh, he didn't have any comorbidities. Um, he didn't have any of that. So he was able to live longer. And, and yes, you can live well with dementia up to a certain point. Matt enjoyed life up until a certain point. They get to a certain point and then they go downhill. That's a fact, folks. And I'm a Jersey girl and I will not sugarcoat this disgusting horrible monster because it can't be sugar-coated and I will not sugarcoat it
0: (laughs) and and I have to tell you Betsy I, I agree with you that it is an ugly terrible debilitating disease and we're also learning that the people that are caring for somebody with dementia because it is such a long it can be a very long process 10 years 20 years They can live a a good life to a certain point, and it does go downhill from there. And then it's very challenging. Many try to keep their family member at home, but because of all the multitasking, the the levels of stress that family caregivers experience, they are more prone to developing dementia than people that
1: were non-caregivers. I can definitely believe that, the lack of sleep. I look back now, Diane, and I think, how did I do it? How did I, I, the only, I, I could only say, I believe in God. I give God the glory because if it wasn't for God's strength and grace, I wouldn't have made it through. I made it through, thank God, my mind intact and my health. I have some minor issues, but basically healthy and in good shape. And I don't know if I would have been if Matt would have lived longer. I, I think it would have been at the point where I would not have been able to take care of him at home. He was heading that way when he died. I don't feel guilty when I say this. I'm glad Matt died when he did. He died before COVID, and I'm glad God took him home than to have suffered some more. I can tell you that many caregivers – of
0: somebody that has provided care for somebody with dementia has relief when they die. And people think that's terrible and cruel and awful, but it's the reality that you do have relief because it's a burden. You do it with love and you do it with selflessness and caring, but it is a, a burden for many and you suffer the consequences. The consequences of caregiver stress last as long as three years after your caregiving journey is over. So many caregivers are diagnosed with other illnesses because of lack of self-care and the stress that they've been under for up to three years, four years after they
1: have um, their caregiving journey is over. Oh, I, I definitely could understand that. It's a year and a half for me, mm-hmm. and I'm just now um, doing much better. But I'm just now trying to, yes, I'm moving on, but I have post-traumatic stress from caregiving. I do. I get up, and I'm like, my heart's palpitating. I went to the cardiologist. I went last year. I went this year because I still get to where, oh, I got to rush. I got to rush. And then I have to realize Matt's not here. I don't have to rush. I don't have to rush to do this and this. I When I think every day of what I did, it, it's really amazing that I'm still alive and in the shape that I'm in. It's a lot, folks. I'm telling you from experience, it's a lot. And caregivers, you must take care of yourself. And that's not selfish to put yourself first. It's called a survival. Because your loved one, and I don't mean to sound cruel, is going to die. And you're still going to have a life afterwards. And if you want to enjoy life after caregiving, you have to take care of yourself during caregiving. That's the bottom line. And that's what our loved ones would want us to do. And I will do a talk, Diane, on surviving and uh, uh, thriving during caregiving. We all have a right to enjoy life after caregiving.
0: Absolutely. You have a right to a life during caregiving. Yes. And many don't uh, understand that. I know that people feel like many hide their, many people that have early onset hide their, like you said, Matt wasn't telling you what was going on at work and the work didn't call because of HIPAA. Uh, you, you do face some so some unique challenges and there's also stigma and stereotypes about the disease and what you experienced is what Matt experienced was that many don't believe that they have the disease or question a diagnosis here you were dealing with the health care providers that were doing that I can't believe that it's difficult and and he needs to be there's a big people lose relationships and jobs as a consequence because they misunderstand uh and we're not identified as medically ill or disabled, and it's very difficult to deal with, as as you well know. So our medical delivery system let you down and may let others down. So one of the points we have to get across here is you, if you have to fight. And one of the things I have to say, Betsy, is that I am truly honored and blessed that You are part of our team that is willing to get out there and tell these caregivers, you got to fight. When people are telling you you don't know what you're talking about or they make you sound like you are the crazy one, please reach out to us, reach out to others, because we both have battled the medical delivery system on different levels, and we know what to do, and we will be there to help support you and lift you up when you feel down.
1: Yes, it is. A, it's a it's a task when you know your loved one. We know our loved ones better than medical professionals, and that's what they have to understand that we know our loved one. We're not crazy. We know that there's something wrong, and to be told that there's not, or someone's not trying hard enough during testing, and that's not the only one. I've interviewed caregivers who have said. Or people who have or do have dementia that were blamed that they didn't do well on a test. How dare somebody, a neuropsychologist, blame a person who's coming to them for help saying you didn't try hard enough? I, I wouldn't have really called up her supervisor if I would have known back 11 years ago what I know now. But the information wasn't as prominent as it is now. This is why I say caregivers. Educate yourself. Knowledge is power. Educate yourself.
0: And educate our healthcare professionals. And yes. if they won't listen to you, go up the, I call going up the chain of command. If there's a practice manager, a doctor's not listening, there's got to be a practice manager, somebody who will listen. Get a second opinion. Get a third opinion. Somebody will listen eventually. And it's a battle, and you don't have the energy sometimes to do it. And I understand that. God bless. I do. I've been there. You've been there. And we shouldn't be second-guessed. That's right. One of the issues I have is when the uh, doctors don't want any feedback from the family at all. I really have issues with that. I have seen the patients blatantly lie That They're compliant, they're this or that, that, or they confabulate and make up a story that is totally untrue. And when the family goes to interject, I've had doctors put their hand up and say, I don't want any information from you. And that makes me crazy because I I blatantly come out and say, I just outright say, this is not true. (laughs) What you're hearing is not true. And doctors don't want, sometimes they don't want to hear it. They don't want to know it. And it's frustrating.
1: Yes. We were, in the beginning, Diane, Matt's primary doctor, who's a very nice doctor, blew me off. He blew us off Yeah. when I said that Matt started to have memory problems. And Matt happened to be in the hospital at the time for another issue. He said, oh, no. But when Matt's primary got said no from this company doctor, he called me and he was like, holy crap, Betsy, I didn't know this. That's I tried telling you. He goes, I can't believe it. I can't believe it.
0: I think that if we've accomplished anything today, I hope our caregivers know we're there for them. We've been there. We've lived it. We understand. We are here to support you and uh, guide you when nobody
1: else will listen. Yes, and you know, we have to question. I told my mom, I said, question the neurologist. Ask if he knows about vascular dementia. Question your doctor. Say, how educated are you about the field of dementia? Don't be afraid to question them and their knowledge and that they feel threatened by that. Go to another doctor.
0: I agree. I, I take clients to the, uh, the primary care, and I always, and they've had diagnosis of dementia, and I always find it strange that they don't do a mini mental at least every few visits to assess whether there's a change in mental status. Uh, I've had patients say well, my family member is wandering or whatever, and. I have an issue with the fact that that the, they're having these behaviors, and the nurses respond, "Well, it's okay. Everything will be okay. Take them home, and they'll be fine." No, there's issues here. What do we do? This is another point I'm going to make: is we are the, not only the, the caregivers are not only invisible healthcare workers, we are invisible to the medical professionals, and what should be happening through these programs that I'm encouraging everybody, like the uh, organizations, specific disease organizations, we should be able to have a doctor's appointment at the same time as our family member to get our own health issues addressed. And we should be able to, we should have healthcare do- workers or social workers that are on staff or available to us through these organizations somehow to help provide us with support that we need and community support to get some care in the home or to uh, listen to us. You go to counseling, you have counseling benefits maybe, but here's a fact that people don't know. Medicare Advantage is only available to people under the age of 65. You have to have a Medicare Advantage program. You can't purchase a uh, supplement. And under Medicare Advantage, everybody says, oh, you you get this wonderful coverage. You get dental, you get it. Hello, you don't get any mental health benefits at all. And Medicare Advantage is to prevent things. And Medicare Advantage is great if you're healthy and well, but when you need it for other care, when you're seriously ill, it provides and limits services dramatically. You're limited to the doctors, you're limited to the testing, you're limited to the specialists, you're just very limited. And what people don't understand is that with that Medicare Advantage programs that you have, you are if you want services, you have to private pay for those services.
1: Uh, well, yeah, that's a whole. <laughs>
0: that's a whole other ballgame, too. Uh, yes.
1: Right. Diane, like, yes. I can't afford counseling on my insurance. I have that affordable health care program, yeah. um, <laughs> which is not. I go to my senior uh, center in my township. So if you don't have great insurance, check your senior center where you live, especially in the United States. Check and don't swallow your pride. Uh, they give free counseling. I remember that when I went for Medicare, for them to help me with Medicare with Matt, different programs, the prescription. They're there to help you. They get a grant. And when the social worker said we give counseling and you qualify because you're the spouse, I kept that in mind. So after Matt died, I said, do you still give free counseling? She said, yes. So at that time, I was when I thought I was 62, so I qualified. Hard to wrap my head around. I'm a senior citizen. (laughs) 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 I'm considered a senior citizen now, but now I'm 63. And you know what? I take advantage of their programs, uh, whatever they offer, Zoom programs, Zoom seminars, counseling. We pay taxes. We might as well take advantage of it.
0: Exactly. Exactly. Betsy, we've covered a lot today, and I'm so grateful that you uh, were able to share this information and your experience with others. I'm going to end the podcast with my usual spiel. uh, To my caregivers out there, remember, you are the most important part of the caregiving journey. Without you, it all falls apart. Practice self-care. Be gentle with yourself because you are worth it. Thanks, Betsy. And until next time, I appreciate you.
1: I appreciate you too, Diane. Thank you for what you are doing to help other people. I love you. I love what you're doing. I love you too, Betsy. Okay, bye. Thank you. Bye-bye.